If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Is the purpose of life personal development or changing society for the better? And what is the future of political engagement? On this week's episode, we're discussing the relationship between our personal beliefs and civic engagement. To lead our discussion, we're joined remotely by four leading thinkers, anarcho-primitist John Zerzan, author and Buddhist nun Emma Slade, radical left-wing journalist Aaron Bastani, and former Liberal Democrat leader Vince Cable. The idea of a politics without an ethics is incredibly dangerous because it looks basically at other humans as uh, through a purely instrumental lens. This episode is presented in association with Say Your Peace. That's P-E-A-C-E. Say Your Peace aims to spark global change through self-transformation and community dialogue. Find out more at sayyourpeace.org and check them out on Instagram and Facebook. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's discussion, Isabel Hilton. So from family feuds to Twitter tirades, many people speak passionately about the need for change, and they draw inspiration from individuals who may have sacrificed life or limb to bring about change. Yet few act on their beliefs, other than casting a vote from time to time, and many continue to participate in systems that they publicly condemn and consider unjust. So are we cowards, hypocrites, or worse? Should we accept that as citizens, we don't have the answers and leave it to those who are elected to find solutions to intractable problems? Do we have to recognize that individuals don't have the capacity to change the course of history and simply seek satisfaction and contentment in living according to our own values in our own lives? Or is it the duty of all citizens to act on our beliefs and do all we can to change society in ways that we think necessary? Well, to debate this, I'm joined by four distinguished panelists. John Zerzan is an anarcho-primitivist author and eco-philosopher whose work focuses on the effects of civilization and the urgent need to return to a free society based on a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. 
Aaron Bastani is co-founder of Novara Media, one of the most influential independent radical left-wing media organizations in the United Kingdom. He's also author of Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which presents his vision of 21st century communism. Emma Slade gave up a high-flying career in finance to become the first Western woman to be ordained a Buddhist nun in Bhutan in 2014. She's an author and founding CEO of the charity Opening Your Heart to Bhutan. And Sir Vince Cable is the former leader of the Liberal Democrats who served almost continuously as an MP since 1997. He was Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills from 2010 to 2015 during the coalition government and is equally well known for his foxtrot on a strictly Christmas special. So um, I'm going to ask each of our uh, panellists to lay out their case, if you like, um, for two minutes uh, before we get into the debate in a slightly deeper fashion. And the question that I want each of them to respond to is, should we just accept that as citizens we don't have the answers and shouldn't we leave it to those who are elected to find solutions to intractable problems? John, could I start with you? Certainly. Well, I find it encouraging. What I think I'm seeing, at least some signs of seeing the whole business at uh, the necessary depth of the problem, the overarching uh, crisis. And so we've seen... Uh, this is the way I would put it very briefly. Civilizations come and go, they've risen, they've fallen. And I would argue that there's now just one civilization, a globalized, uh, totalizing one under the sign of technology and capital. And it is visibly grandly failing on every level in every sphere, I think. And that's being borne in on people, not just in terms of ideas, but in terms of life. Uh, I think we're in the age of pandemics where the epidemics uh, proliferate one after another and tend to become pandemics. And of course, that's where we're at right now. Uh, the environmental catastrophe has been arriving, unfolding, the seas are rising, they're acidifying or warming, they're full, full of plastics more and more. Mass species uh, extinction, the weather extremes, the global air pollution, on and on and on. That's uh, a monstrous failure of uh, civilization, I think. What drives all this? And what of the social, of the soul? Well, we see a landscape, a panorama of anxiety, depression, loneliness, uh, drug use, high suicide rates, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, you kind of look in vain to find uh, that the dominant order has any answers at all. And so uh, I think it's time to get more serious if, if we're going to contend with the, uh, with the gravity of all this. And I think we've seen that uh, one particular part of it is technology, which I think has to some degree come to fill the vacuum left by the pretty broadly based failure of political ideas, political claims and promises, I think attract relatively fewer people that the massive advertising of technology that has the answers for everything. It's gonna fix everything. Uh, you know, that's that's certainly ongoing. Okay. And it says we're, we're all connected, we're more and more connected. 
Well, the fact is we're more and more disconnected. We're more and more isolated. Uh, it claims that we're all empowered via technology. Well, we're more disempowered okay. by the moment. So and I'm guessing from that, that, that you don't think there's much point in leaving it to those who are elected to no, find solutions to this, this landscape that you, you've set out. So we will come back to these issues. But right now, I'd like to go to Aaron with the same question, if I may. In a way, I'm going to repeat really a lot of what, what John has said. Um, and, and I think politics, in many ways, has not been more important for, for any of our lives. I think you could probably go back to the 1930s to say politics has such significant for the outcomes of, of individual lives. Uh, and that's because we're in an era of crisis. Uh, and we talk repeatedly about an economic crisis, climate crisis, political representation, and so on. It becomes a cliche. But I think if you look at COVID-19 in particular, it's been described as a, a boomerang coming from the sixth great extinction and hitting the human race square in the jaw. Uh, and the reason being is that this is the third novel coronavirus We've seen this century, COVID-19, uh, other two are MERS and SARS. And the reason why we're seeing this accelerate, and there are around 3,000 distinct coronaviruses amongst the planet's bat population, is because of deforestation and because of species displacement. Uh, effectively, the whole world is now adopting fast food and industrial agriculture. Uh, and that means there are going to be, as John has just said, there are going to be many, many, many more pandemics. We should be, you know, incredibly grateful this doesn't have a fatality rate of something like Ebola. You know, if you have a mix of something like Ebola with something which is 40% asymptomatic, you, you see tens, hundreds of millions of deaths. Now, I'm not saying that to panic anybody, but it's an important thought experiment to think, how bad could this have been for the, for the next time? And that's just one aspect of the climate crisis. Another is, of course, as John said, we've all got microparticles of plastic in our bodies. Uh, we are looking at two degrees warming this century, which will mean uh, fresh drinking water for around a third of the planet will disappear. Then you've got attendant with that the economic crisis, the background noise to all of this since 2008. We've not seen rising living standards. Now, we'll have some disagreement about that. Vince will say, well, that can be addressed with a you know, sort of counter-cyclical Keynesian stimulus. Somebody like John or myself would say, actually, this is kind of the end of the road for a certain economic model. Uh, but in any case, you know, we've not really seen this uh, happen in Western democracies to this extent, again, since the 20s, since the 30s. Uh, and by way of just how much the ecological crisis is intensifying, and this is a remarkable statistic, in three years, China is using more concrete than the United States did for the whole of the 20th century. In three years. So these things are rapidly building up. And right now, the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere are far higher than they've been in the history of primates and then some. So we've been around, been around 200,000, 300,000 years, but right now concentrations of CO2 probably at the highest level in several million years. So this idea that if we adopt a sort of ethical stance, take a step back, I, I think in a way that's very irresponsible to future generations because the consequences, the aftermath of all that is coming down the line very quickly, probably, probably in our children's lifetime, grandchildren's lifetime. Okay, so, so problems are too big to step back from, in other words, but... Um but I'm, I'm not hearing from you um, that uh, elected representatives are going to be those who fix it. Emma, can I just um, go to you, please, and just remind you of what the opening, uh, the opening inquiry was, which was, should we accept that we don't have the answers and should we just leave it to those whom we do elect to find those answers? 
Yes, and I think it was to intractable problems, wasn't it? We described these problems in the question as intractable, which I, first of all, uh, want to say, I think if we describe a problem as intractable, we might as well all shut up shop. So let's imagine they're not intractable problems and um, they're clearly urgent problems. What I'm hearing in John and Aaron is this incredible urgency of the feeling that time is running out. And uh, I think that speaks to one of the Achilles heels of the human being, which is the capacity to be very short-termist. We are trained as humans to deal with something that is threatening us right now. And of course, a lot of the things that Aaron and John are talking about require a vision brings the future into now and I think uh, neuroscience shows that the human being is not good at that. From a Buddhist point of view which is the one I know best, all beings are interdependent, everything is interrelated and that ripples through many of the, the crises that Karen has spoken about. Interrelated on a coarse level, very obvious ways, down to very very subtle level of existence as well. We can look at these questions from the perspective of what each of us as an individual can do, what a variety of institutions can do, political being one of them, other ones are financial, other ones are in the virtual world, and the uh, increasing dominance of AI in that virtual world. Each of us, it will be up to us as individuals and institutions to decide what we wish to do. From a Buddhist point of view, we have three guiding principles. They are to deliberately decide to not cause suffering. They are to deliberately decide to take positive action to alleviate suffering, bring about happiness. And they are to devote your time and energy, cultivating simplicity, to reducing the anger and the greed and selfishness in the human mind, which are seen as <laughs> or to many of these external problems, which now we see so clearly. I don't think the problems are intractable. I don't think it's helpful to ever think to leave it to anyone else or anything else. I think we each have our part to play as individuals, institutions. We must recognize Achilles heel, short termism, in the way that the human brain is wired. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Vince, you, you were an elected um, representative for many, many years. Uh, do you feel that we should, as citizens, leave it to uh, people uh, like you um, no. to find solutions? Well, we shouldn't leave it to people like me, but we have an important role. And I think the important role falls into two categories. I mean, there are two categories of politicians and we all have elements of these insiders. Uh, one are the priests and the other are the plumbers. And the priests are the people who set standards, who have set values, who are inspirational. And the plumbers are the people who get things done and are practical and pragmatic and don't worry too much about the big picture. I suppose a good example of the first would be Obama, um, inspirational and uh, eloquent, uh, but he also did practical things, got health reform through, uh, and a very good example of a political plumber that I find uh, very encouraging would be somebody like Angela Merkel in Germany, 
uh, runs a very competent system on scientific methods, uh, consults, does things in a practical, sensible way, but also does good things. And the, the, the episode of admitting a million Muslims to Germany and then settling them and, and doing practice, not just preaching, but actually making it happen. That struck me as being a very good role model. I mean, and I think that, you know, representative democracy involves politicians doing a combination of those two things, and they're very important. And if you don't have politicians doing them, what are the alternatives? I mean, you can have authoritarian regimes. I mean, they can be competent, but nasty. And I suppose China would be a good example of this. Most of them are incompetent and nasty. Um, and, you know, wherever they happen, whenever there is an opening, there is a yearning for representative democracy. I suppose good examples at the moment would be Thailand, Belarus, where people are making sacrifices uh, to fight for that system, or Navalny in, in Russia, putting his own life on the line to have more representative government. And, and finally, you know, of course, you can have unrepresentative democracy. I mean, the, the, you know, there is this demand in some quarters to, for the people to decide without representatives. And we've had uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy is a, an example of that. We have referendums, our own Brexit referendum was not a great success, but it was uh, the people speaking. Um, but I think what we all ultimately come back to is representative democracy and the role of the politician uh, and the two roles that I described, being priests and being plumbers. Okay, so that's um, a fairly bleak picture presented by, by at least two of our panellists, um, slightly more um, pragmatic and optimistic uh, from Vince. I want to move on, though, to, to the question of personal responsibility and, and in this uh, a complicated world beset by extremely large and interrelated problems. So some individuals... Um, seem to find political beliefs and affiliations completely essential to their sense of what they do in life, to their, to their being. Others seem to have fulfilling lives without engaging in politics at all. So I'd like to ask each, each of you, if you think that the, that the purpose of life is really about personal development, about finding that private happiness, if you like, or is it about changing society for the better? Um, John, you're um, a a radical figure, if you like, which, where do you find the purpose in life? What do you think it's about? Well, I don't think the two uh, can be separated. Um, we may try to hide from the realities. And of course, each of us has to figure out what kind of contribution uh, one might make. There are all kinds of avenues to pursue that in, but uh, I think uh, it, it does have a lot to do with basic values. I like what, when Emma referred to simplicity, uh, that's of very great importance to us. And it relates to wholeness as a goal or as a value. <clears throat> and I would say that if we don't have a future which is somewhat or somehow primitive, there won't be a future. And we, we have to face up to that. So what we, discuss, what we put on the table for people to contend with and argue about are things at that level, not, not this or that politician or this or that program. All of that has proven to be 
irrelevant and, and destructive in terms of actually getting somewhere which is qualitatively different world. When you say primitive, if you don't have a future that's primitive, what, what do you mean exactly? Can you explain? I mean getting rid of technology. Uh -huh. Technology has undone all the traditional values. It, it has erased community. There is no more community. Industrialized mass society has just gotten, gotten done with it. Politicians or developers use that word all the time, community. Well, where is it? What happened to it? it all of that is in tatters. And, and, and is that all technology, digital technology? Do you, do you stop at the kettle? Where, where do you stop? Well, I think it's a, it's a distinction. Uh, might be helpful to view the distinction between tools and technology. When we talk about technology now, it's in a more uh, rarefied way. But we're really talking about systems of technology, where the in, where the individual is more and more dependent, and more and more de-skilled. I mean, I think we need to go way back to start questioning the development of division of labor or specialization. That's where all this gets going, you know, at, at the furthest remove. And you can track the, uh, the development into these uh, horrible systems that are ruining everything, really, everything. Vince, you're, you're, you've been part of systems that have failed. And I think in, in John's view that um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm misrepresenting what he said there. Um, what, what would you see? as the result of a retreat into a retreat from technology, a retreat into a more primitive vision, would that would that work? I don't think it would work for us as a society, but, but there's nothing to stop individuals opting out and demonstrating a quality of life. I think that's you know part of the diversity of society we should be trying to encourage. But I think for most people, um, the advantages of technology, which have been Long, long, longevity, um, easier communications, uh, lack of crippling labour, um, you know, many other things are things that, you know, most of us value and want to make sustainable. Um, I think that as a practical politician, there, there is nothing more irritating than people who have strong views about how things should be done but don't believe they should personally be involved. I mean, the typical conversation on the doorstep with people who berate you, and then you ask them how they're going to vote, and they say, sorry, we don't vote, we're Jehovah's Witness, or something of that kind. I mean, I think that actually is profoundly irresponsible. I mean, we all have some level of responsibility for the society of which we're part, and some people may obsess about it and some people may only participate once every five years but some degree of responsibility i think has to be a common uh, element for all of us so, so that would argue that that retreating into the personal is is avoiding some civic responsibility emma you seem to lead a life of um, perhaps a, a more highly spiritual life than than most of us do you think you've opted out of your civic responsibility here? No, not at all. Um, in particular, because I founded a charity and have, you know, dedicated a lot of my time to that. So I'm not just sitting around saying "om" all day. I think that the technology question is very important. I think it, technology has been very useful. I am personally concerned by the AI, the artificial intelligence. 
um, and this next wave of technology that we're going into as to whether that is going to be helpful to the degree that um, maybe other technological changes have been used. Uh, in terms of development of uh, a human life and the development of that society, they clearly go hand in hand. And if you look at most models of human development, whether it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs about how a human develops, or an Eastern view, a yogic view, uh, they, the two are absolutely interlinked. Healthy individual uh, who has the physical needs met, their emotional needs met, then they get a healthy sense of identity. And then from there, they can become a healthy and happy member of society. And it's, it becomes a virtuous circle. So to me, you can't separate these these two. Society plays a role in obviously ensuring that each of its members, each of its individual members can develop to that healthy state in order to give back. Aaron, do you think that it's possible to lead a fulfilling life without engaging in politics? What What makes for a fulfilling life? I mean, that's obviously an incredible question. It's been... Uh, Many, many people have attempted to answer it with a plethora, you know, of answers. Aristotle would say that fundamentally an ethical life would necessarily lead to a political life. Politics needs to be an extension of ethics. And I, I would relay through that point. The idea of a politics without an ethics is incredibly dangerous because it looks basically at other humans as uh, through a purely instrumental lens. So I would say necessarily anybody who is politically invested without a sense of personal ethics is quite dangerous, I think quite, you know, concerning for me. Others, you go through to Machiavelli, sort of early modern period, they would say, well, actually, politics is this unique sphere separate from ethics about pure expediency, right? This is where we read the prince or something. And we tend to, we tend to, and I think quite rightly, view somebody who acts in such a way with, um, you know, with, with, with uh, dismay, concern, um, you know, we, we, we wouldn't necessarily trust them. I, I think personally, I would, as, a, as a good Marxist, I would say that if you're um, serious about your own personal subject formation, Marx would call the species being, uh, I think for, for a Buddhist, they might think of it as, you know, the, the escape from samsara. I think there's probably some connection there, actually. There's a great deal of, mystic, of Eastern mysticism, which infuses German idealism, which goes to Marxism. A apologies for all the isms. Uh, it is quite <laughs> Uh, you know, all, all the isms, all the isms are wasms since the since the early 1990s. But you know, there's an interesting history there. Uh, and what I would say is, if you're interested in your sort of the the the, the cultivation of your yourself, your identity, that would necessarily require um, you, in a dialectical way, engaging with people beyond yourself, because that that subject formation without the other is impossible. If I can tentatively suggest what the point we've reached here is that is that system change and personal cultivation are not necessarily separate things and that perhaps they're codependent um so so then i think that brings us to the question of what about people who are not engaged but have opinions vince you talked about the frustration of, of being on the doorstep and meeting people who complained about the system but then um, didn't vote. There are also people who have views about the system and who only vote and and, and don't have a wider uh, political engagement. Um, so I guess, you know, at, at the beginning of this discussion, we, we raised the question of whether they were cowards, whether they were hypocrites. 
why you know what should, how should we how should we judge people or how should we judge ourselves if we are one of them um who have views about a system but don't engage more 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 deeply Aaron you do engage clearly what do you think of people who don't what do I think of people that don't I mean, it, it, it depends. If somebody has a lifestyle which is incredibly consumptive, you know, they're using personally, you know, a huge carbon footprint, a huge amount of the planet's biocapacity. Yeah, I, I, I view that person as very irresponsible because fundamentally they're drawing on resources which the rest of us require. If somebody was living a very frugal life, sort of ascetic existence, I, I don't think I would particularly mind. So I think there's there's probably a calculation there. John, you, you have chosen, if you like, to live out your beliefs. You must also meet people who have views on, on the system, which are perhaps as strong as yours, but who don't act on them beyond casting a vote every now and then. Do you regard that as hypocrisy? Do you regard that as cowardice? What, what, do, you, what do you think of that behaviour? Well, you're framing all this in a very mainstream way. For example, I might say, the decision to not vote as a political act is, is, you know, you've decided not to reproduce and legitimate the system by voting. That isn't, of course, that would be completely uh, uh, frowned upon by uh, the dominant system, but that's only one way to look at it. We anarchists don't look at it that way. Uh, you know, so, you know, you, you need to I mean, sometimes there are a lot of hidden assumptions that we could unpack. It's, you know, as if not everyone subscribes to all these things. I don't want to be a citizen or a consumer or a worker. I want to see ultimately an entirely different world that didn't even invent the political, that all of that stuff has been uh, leading to a suicidal end, in fact, to, not to over-dramatize it, but look where we're at. All this progress with the capital P, all this investment in all these things that are supposedly uh, sacred or subscribed to by everybody, well, that's kind of running out. That hasn't worked out very well. But, but, but for people who may hold views as passionate as yours, but who do nothing about them, what, how is one supposed to understand that? How do you well, understand that? example, they're not... It, it isn't doing nothing to decide not to vote. That's a political act in itself, right? So, you know, we shouldn't just keep assuming that that person has no interest, you know, who isn't thinking about things. Certainly there are people who are not, who don't vote who are not thinking about it. I'm not saying everything uh, there is a conscious decision, certainly not, but there are different ways to approach this whole thing. You know, it's a, uh, for example, a Marxist, if we're talking about whatever project we might want to pursue, well, Marxists want to take over the means of production in the service of a more egalitarian uh, world, right? Well, I was thinking this morning about the movie Snowpiercer, if you'll just uh, <laughs> let me go on for a second. The movie Snowpiercer about the, the big, long train that races around the world. Well, the inmates, the people that are oppressed, start to mount a revolt. They want to attack the ruling elite, the oppressors in the cars up front and take it over. You know, like, uh, for example, good Marxists would do. But the, the, the point of the movie, which I found very interesting and radical is the point is not to take it over. 
The part, the, the point is to go somewhere else, to do something quite different, not to take over this, this uh, suicidal project, this train. <laughs> Who needs that? It doesn't, what does it get you? Ultimately, it's, it doesn't work that way. Since you, you talked about the frustration of, of uh, people with views, but, with, but without participation, um, how do you would, you, would you regard that as, as hypocrisy? Would you regard that as personal cowardice? What's, wh well, I wouldn't use those particular words, but I, <clears throat> I don't feel comfortable with it. I, I, I think what I would say to somebody who um, wants not to vote as a political statement is that that is your right. We shouldn't make voting compulsory, as in Australia. Um, we should allow it as a right. But then don't complain if the political system develops in ways that you don't like. I mean, if you've abstained, you've abstained, and you've abstained, abstained from the consequences. But I think politicians do have, should have some humility and recognize that the system we have does not allow um, a lot of individuals to express themselves as effectively as they could. We, in, in the UK, we have a highly dysfunctional democracy. It's very highly centralized. It doesn't allow a great deal of local decision-making. There's elements of corruption, if you like, and it's our job to clean that up and make democracy more accessible and allow people with as wide a range of views as possible to express it. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say my vote's wasted, and it often is under our first-past-the-post system. So we have a responsibility to reform the voting system so every vote does count. But if at the end of it people don't want to participate, that is their choice. And it's a legitimate choice, but then don't complain about the result. But do you think beyond voting, beyond the question of voting or non-voting, that people who have strong views about desiring change also have a personal responsibility to try to bring it about in some way? Yes, I, I think that's right. Um, and it doesn't have to be political. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of politics with a small P in every community, you know, in terms of, um, you know, people's responding to planning applications or their views about the local community center, things of this kind. People may have strong views about it, want to organize, express them. I think that is, that is democracy, that is politics, but it doesn't necessarily involve conventional party voting. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Emma, on a personal level, do you think it's legitimate to desire change without wishing to engage in the process of bringing it about? I think we're saying here that there's many different processes which can bring about change, right? Not just politics, yes? But I think, you know, as a human, we have the capacity to be incredibly creative and each of us have a vision for the world we would wish to live in and work towards it politics may be one way but i think if you're not engaged in um 
the, the future, the vision that you would wish for this world we're all sharing, then some part of you is not alive. Some part of you is bunkered. It's necessary for a fulfilled life in, the, in that case. Yes, absolutely. I mean, otherwise you're pretending as if you live in isolation and your action, speech and thoughts don't, because, don't affect everything around you. And of course they do. Yes, absolutely. So, so let's look at the, the future. We, we, we began with a rather bleak uh, assessment of, of multiple crises from, from John and from, from Aaron um, without really any uh, faith at all from either of them in uh, the existing system being able to remedy those. Um, so I, I wonder really how we see the future of political engagement or how indeed the kind of change that, um, that, that we might feel is necessary at this point um, could come about. Uh, it doesn't seem that uh, young people are particularly engaged in formal systems at the moment. There's a decline in voter uh, participation we're not really, it seems, managing to keep younger people um, in, politically involved in the sense, again, of the, of the formal systems. So I wonder whether the future of politics is going to have that kind of engagement that might be required uh, to change society. Um, John, I suspect that your idea of political engagement would be radically different from Vince's. But do you see a future in politics um, or the future of politics with, with greater engagement or less engagement? How do, you, how do you see the future at this point? Well, I think there's a deeper social disengagement. Uh, 20 years ago, this fellow Putnam, the American writer, wrote Bowling Alone. And he was talking about the decline of bowling leagues, but a great deal more than that any kind of civic, social organization, lodges, any kind of thing like that has declined markedly and it's gotten even worse uh, subsequently. I mean, it's just, that's, that's a deeper question. It's, it's, it is clear that people are disengaging from the political. I think they see it as a racket and uh, they see themselves as powerless in it. They, they don't want to play that game anymore. Some significant, uh, portion of the people anyway, uh, there's, there's a different terrain in which to struggle. And if you, you, then you can turn to what is it that's making for all this isolation, this anime, this loneliness that you can't stop finding articles and studies and opinions about constantly. Uh, that's the bedrock of all this. That's the sort of phenomenology of it. You know, that's, that's what's happening with society. Never mind electoral politics. That's, that's an epiphenomenon. It's there's something much more basic going on, and it's very scary. It's it's getting to be more and more of a cold, lonely society that's less and less healthy, less and less robust. You know, down the down the line. So you were arguing earlier that that if you removed technology, if if we removed technology, we would get back to a level of personal interaction which would fix that. I, I wonder, though, if you, if you don't have a slightly romantic view of a pre-technological age. Well, it depends on what age we're talking about. But I mean, what's happened to the face-to-face? -to -face? 
I don't think you really have community unless you have face-to-face. -face. Well, that's, that's pr pretty much gone. In fact, the technology, it seems like even voices, and that's rather disembodied, you know, phones, uh, especially the younger people, they don't, they don't want voice. They don't want human voices. You know, it's, it's just a matter of uh, sending the messages. Uh, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty awful. I mean, we're moving further and further from actual engagement. You can say technology is useful. Well, of course it is. You know, I mean, you could look up things and so forth. Not that it's always reliable, even in that sense, but it has, it has separated us more and more. It has not connected us. So Aaron, do you, do you, do you, I, how do you see that? If we're looking for a future in which we would wish people to be more politically engaged, we should take away technology. Does that work yeah, for you? I would, I mean, I would disagree with that. I mean, I, I've got probably quite a few points of disagreement with, with John on, on the technology stuff. I think there's a great deal of merit to it, obviously, but uh, I, I would disagree in the, in the whole that the idea of technology, modern technology is, is purely alienating. I'll return to that point in a second. I mean, the first thing I would want to say is that I don't think people are disengaged from politics particularly. You know, the Brexit vote in 2016 had the largest turnout in history in this country. People were incredibly politicized. People were incredibly invested. We're seeing similar in the United States. And I think, particularly amongst the young, and I don't think youth, youth movements don't win. So I'm not saying this is great, this is the future, but it's an interesting observation. You know, if you look at young people going for climate strike, Black Lives Matter, the, the boundary now between personal lifestyle, personal interests, personal conversations with their friendship groups and big P politics is increasingly permeable. Now, when I was 18, 19 myself, that was not the case. So I think in that sense, I think engagement's gone dramatically up. I think it will continue to go dramatically up. And then on the point of technology, you know, I'll give you an example, social media. I, you know, I, if I was uh, in charge, if I ever had a cabinet position like Vince, I'd be lobbying for the, the, the banning of Twitter. But, you know, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's purely negative. You know, I think about Instagram, for instance. Uh, I've used Instagram many times to, to find places to go for a walk. I go, oh, wow, somebody's recommended this place to go for a walk. I'll go see the place on Instagram. I see pictures. <clears throat> so the idea that this screen is necessarily alienating me from nature isn't true because I'm finding these places through Instagram. Similarly, uh, Instagram has been incredible for finding local independent businesses to support during this pandemic. And I can, I can see who they are, who runs them. I can get a sense of the personality, their values. And so, again, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that they're entirely alienating. I think there's a contradiction there. At the same time, of course, you know, Twitter, Instagram, these are built on very exploitative technologies. It's about destroying our concentration spans. But yeah, I, I would disagree with a fair bit of, of what John just said there. Vince, I mean, clearly you would like uh, young people to be engaged or, or, or citizens in the future to be deeply engaged in politics. But we've heard there that there is an engagement in politics, but it's not necessarily in the kind of politics that you pursue. How, does, mm. how do you see the future? How do you see that engagement? I don't necessarily think it's negative. And that, I, mean, I, I think there is a lot of political engagement by young people and it fluctuates. Um, and it's got something in the UK to do with the voting system. But um, I mean, the, the answer in part is, that of course, if you don't engage politically, um, you cede the political ground to someone else. And one of the, one of the reasons, several reasons, we we have this acute problem of intergenerational fairness in the UK, which has expressed itself mainly in the housing market, but also to some extent in the Brexit vote and in all kinds of other ways. 
is that uh, older people participate, you know, religiously with great enthusiasm. And as a result, they acquire power and clout. And of course, if young people opt out, then they lose that. So I'm optimistic. I mean, I think, you know, plenty of evidence that young people participate. And I totally disagree with this very negative uh, view that John uh, is, is expounding about the way society is evolving. I mean, if you go back to Putnam, who he cited, I mean, mm-hmm. his classic study was about Italy, which was about the North, which had a very dense system of social networking and organizations, and was economically and politically live and the South, which wasn't. I mean, there was a Putnam-type study done on the UK, which happened to show that the area I represented in south-west London had the densest um, social networking of anywhere in the UK, and it was full of life, and people were doing it through technology. You know, they had their little street Facebook groups, Um, but it was a very live culture. Some of it expressed itself in charities work and some of it in community work and some of it in party politics. But I'm I'm optimistic that, you know, people are using technology uh, to make um, political activity with a small P come alive. The question of the future of engagement Mm. and and how you see it, which which I think is... I mean, it's worth worth exploring from someone who... um, has laid out very eloquently the relationship between, you know, the, the like the personal, the private, mm. and and the political, and mm. and the interconnections with wider humanity. How do you how do you see future engagement? Do you think that it will be a question of individual cultivation having an effect on a wider society, or a more direct form of engagement? I don't think I know the answer to that question. I'll be honest. I think um, that. How would you like it to be? <laughs> what, what, what I would like is that we uh, consider the, the, um, the motive of greed, I think, to live more simply, to so know when we have enough. Uh, those of who do, I think for each individual, we have to ask when we have enough. Um, I think politics is very linked to this idea of an inevitably growing economy, expanding more and more things isn't it and we have to look at this this driving quality of the wish for more and more and more i think behind a lot of the crises we're talking about with we would that silent motivation and it's a different answer from the question of personal engagement but i think it's a one i'd like to bring to the debate some questions have come in which mm-hmm. i would like uh, i just would like to do a couple of rounds on this. From climate change to COVID-19, many of the world's most pressing challenges seem to require massive collective solutions. Can individuals really have an impact on the biggest issues of our era when the complexity of these issues makes us feel powerless? Aaron, could I begin with you? Because you did lay out this this complicated, uh, multi-layered crisis that you feel you're in. As an individual, how can anyone feel that they could possibly have an impact on on that? Well, we all we already do. I mean, we might not necessarily be you know cognizant of it. If you whatever you had for breakfast today, I don't know what you had for breakfast. I had porridge for breakfast today. The ingredients that went into that, the transit, the marketing, all of that required the labour of hundreds of people, potentially thousands of people. 
So we, we already live within incredibly socialized, you know, uh, networks of production. In terms of, of climate change in particular, just stepping off isn't going to work. Just stepping off the treadmill, because purely by virtue of the CO2 already in the atmosphere, we're looking at maybe two degrees warming this century. I think that's a, that's a plausible thing. I think many people say it. And so the, the question is entirely right. We now need to think about the kind of collective action necessary. And while I'm, I'm sceptical of state action, I think that's a healthy position. I think clearly only the state can de decarbonize as quickly as it needs to in the next 15 to 20 years. So, so how does an individual feel that, 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 that an individual can make any difference? I mean, that's, you know, the, the state action is effectively the accumulation of hundreds of, you know, thousands, millions of people's personal preferences. And I think, on a, again, you know, on a local level, people will see how that's manifest. Let's say we have a Green New Deal in this country. We say we're going to decarbonise in 15 years. This is how we're going to do it. You know, that would mean that every street, every house and every street, you know, would dramatically change its energy source, how, you know, it would be retrofitted, it would become more energy efficient, public transport systems would change. So that would be a very obvious thing. I, I think in terms of you want to feel agency, that's that's fine. You're going to have to feel that within a specifically local context. And, you know, I, I would be, I'm, I'm worried about any sort of uh, the limitation between, you know, again, you know, political, personal, public, private, uh, you know, we, we all have agency. And actually, in moments of historic crisis, which we are in, pe people have more agency than, than than they probably imagine. You know, right now, the individual has more agency, I would argue, than they did in the mid-1990s, for instance. Uh, and that works both ways. You know, and if, if, you, if, if people like yourself with progressive values don't try and exert that agency, then, then other people will. You know, in the 1920s, in Bavaria, that was the National Socialist Party. You know, so it, that doesn't necessarily mean that solutions get solved in particularly, you know, advantageous, positive ways. Uh, and, and I think there are a panoply of crises. We could talk about climate, demographic ageing, economic inequality. You know, the idea that things are going to stay the same, I think, is the most outlandish one of all. Either things get much better or I think much worse. So there's a related question, uh, which is how you move from the, the kind of passion that each of you uh, has expressed at, at various moments in this conversation to action and what, what it was that enabled each of you to step out of your, uh, out of your comfort, comfort zone and take the, these steps um, for change. Um, Emma, you in particular, much of your work focuses on, on individual reflection and growth and, and how this transformation can influence uh, external actions. What? What? How does that work? So the the uh, lynch point of my change was to stop being motivated for everything for myself and um, to develop greater compassion and uh, help as many people as I can. So it was that change of focus from I to uh, all of us, or you know, that's the the lens which changed in me, I would say. John, can I ask you the same question? What What is it that enabled you to move from a set of ideas passionately held to a set of actions to uh, to try to bring about the change that you envisage? Well, the action uh, part is, the, of course, the difficult one, but I came of age in the 60s, the movement of the 60s. I was in San Francisco and Berkeley in those days, uh, very exciting days uh, often and against racism, against the Vietnam War and so forth. And, uh, you know, the thing shifts, that was defeated, that came to an end. And we were left with the question, 
what did we not see? Why did that fail? What, what, was, what were we missing, for example? And uh, Mr. Uh, oh, Stuart Brand, the uh, Whole Earth Catalog guy, he said, he posed the question, technology, yes or no? And he answered it very emphatically, yes. Well, we didn't think about technology in the 60s, pretty much not at all. I know I didn't. And, but then it becomes more of a question. He saw some kind of utopian promise. Uh, and now in the fully digitalized world, in the techno sphere, uh, that doesn't seem like it's worked out that way uh, really at all. And it could, I tried to go into that a little bit. But anyway, it's just been a long a long road. I was, I was involved in union organizing and then labor studies. And I began to see the carceral role of unions, the, the policing role of unions. And it changed my thinking quite a lot in terms of English history, uh, you know, essentially the Luddites and so on. And anyway, it's been a long, slow thing. And I hope I haven't, uh, you know, my ideas are not fixed in concrete even now. At least I hope they're not. So, you know, been a long road. Finally, in, in this round, there's a, a, another question which which relates to a theme that keeps coming up, which is social media. And and one of the criticisms of social media is that it enables users to feel that they're contributing to social causes, the kind of click activism kind of thing, without actually making changes. Um, I, the question is: Is this a fair criticism? And and is there a better approach to using the internet? Uh, to instigate change. Aaron, you've been defending um, social media and you've been defending uh, uh, digital technology, but there is some point to that, isn't there? That it gives you the illusion of participation without it being real. And is there something better we can do with it? Yeah, I think we're, I think we're massively wasting the extraordinary potential of the internet and digital communications technologies. You know, I'd agree with, with John to an extent that, that, you know, a lot of this is just a is a car crash from the point of, of psychological welfare, social progress, and so on. But I would disagree as to why that's the case. Um, if you, you know, if you think about the, the possibilities there, the, the, the opportunities to open up, you know, vis new vistas of expression and, and, and find new ideas. You know, I meet now 18, 19 year old kids who are more immersed in, in political ideas and history than I was at, at 25. You know, it's like, this stuff now in your teens, they can learn so much. And it's just, it's really remarkable. Now that gets refracted in a certain way, a negative way, I think, because of social media, but that doesn't have to be the case. And, and the way you were saying about what, so I had a thought in my mind and you said I was, was I willing to sort of defend it? So I look at, for instance, Anthony Fisher. He started the Institute of Economic Affairs in the, in the late fifties. Right. And this guy, and this guy was the god. I'll be quick. This guy was the godfather of Thatcherism, uh, and 30, 40 years, his his utopia comes to part comes to pass. And I would think today, if Anthony Fisher was on Twitter, none of that would happen. So people need to think <laughs> long term. Don't waste your time on Twitter, like me, too often. Vince, can you envisage a better uh, a better way to use social media in your in your line of work? Is it is it is it a positive force for you? Well, it's a fact of life, and you, you've learned to deal with it. And if you're as old as I am, it's difficult, but you, you have to learn. Um, but, and, and I think there are two central problems, which I see as a policymaker. One, of course, is that the platforms that the social media operate from have become kind of massive nat natural monopolies right. with all the potential abuses that monopolies have. They don't gouge your price because of the, their business model. 
that they are monopolies and they're accumulating vast wealth as a result. And that is a problem and it requires more effective regulation, particularly in the United States. And I think the second is how we differentiate material. I mean, we, we have systems of censorship in all countries and to varying degrees. And how do you screen out hate material, child pornography, terrorism, the rest of it, without destroying freedom of speech? It's a sort of fundamental dilemma, for which you require very subtle forms of, of regulation, which we haven't yet mastered. But I think those are the two central challenges to me. We're going to get our audience involved um, at this point. So this is a, a general question um, to the panel. I'm not sure who would be best to answer this. And it, it's something that you did touch on a lot in that debate. Um, so thank you for that. The most recent happiness studies, um, which I think reveal something we all know in our day-to-day -day lives, that our happiness is mostly affected by how our friends treat us, how our partners treat us and our neighbours. And actually our happiness isn't um, directly impacted by knowing about the big political systems we're involved in, be that capitalism, the patriarchy. Um, and so is it not better for us to just focus on increasing our happiness as much as possible? Why should we waste time thinking about the systems, which might be interesting and intellectually stimulating, but don't actually impact our, our happiness on a day-to-day -day level? John? Well, um, to give you an example, here in America, Students often are drilled in the schools uh, in preparation or appearance of a mass shooter because of all the mass shootings, which are, by the way, spreading to other countries. So if you have children, especially, you're thinking about their future. You're thinking about how reality intrudes on their personal life as if, uh, you know, as if you can really separate them. And then it becomes, I think more to the point then, are you going to be happy? If things keep going this way, even five years from now, and you think about the future, for example, your kids or your grandkids, whoever they may be, uh, we don't live in a bubble. That's a graphic example, but that's a, that's a reality. And now things are opening up, or when they do, the schools, for example, there'll be more mass shootings. It hasn't abated. This has been huge since the late 90s. And you ask yourself, what kind of society breeds that that horrific uh, pathology. But, but Emma, is it not fair to say that, you know, if, if, if your primary happiness comes from things other than politics, then why, why bother about politics? Uh, well, I mean, the question of happiness is a huge one, right? And um, so all the forms of happiness that I think of on a daily basis is just temporary happiness, right? It'll come and it'll go. You'll have a friend and then they won't be your friend or you'll have a you know, nice meal and then you won't have a nice meal, isn't it? So um, any of these happinesses from a Buddhist point of view is a temporary material world-based happiness, whether it's politics, friends or whatever, we wouldn't distinguish in that way, to be honest. Hello, um, yeah, so my question is, is about participating in systems that you might deem to be unjust. For example, the housing market. Now, the housing market is obviously um, exploitative and uh, unjust, um, exclusionary and so on. Um, but if one had the opportunity to partake in it um, and buy a property, that might be a prudent thing for one's retirement uh, and so on. So is that, you know, is that a case of hypocrisy or is that just people being sensible 
you know, the same person might wish the abolition of rent. Uh, you could apply the same thing to private school, you know, wanting to send your kids to private school whilst wishing the abolition of private school system of the private school system. So what's going on there? Aaron, it seems curious to be asking a self-confessed communist about the housing market, but the question of, of participating in systems that you, you, you feel are unjust, is, that, is it hypocrisy to participate? After all, we live within these systems. You know, housing, if you, uh, the idea of a home is not the idea of housing as a commodity. And so if I say to the average person, oh yeah, I'm a communist, they say, oh, you, you want to take my house from me? No, I, I probably want to cancel your mortgage, have it because that's what Marx would call use value. The point is, we don't want to treat these things like they're, you know, a kind of Bitcoin, where we're constantly upgrading and exchanging and turning what Marx calls it value in motion, capital, money making money. These should be homes. So that's that's how I respond to it. Now, in terms of the, in terms of the particularities of Britain, you know, right now, because of our economic system, barely anything finds a good rate of return but housing, you know, really. So I understand if somebody gets a hundred thousand pounds inheritance, they think, well, how am I going to make some money here? You know, I don't have a pension. Uh, you know, I might, you know, want to save for a rainy day. But look, inflation's higher than the rate of interest. I'm going to go get a buy-to-let property. I, I entirely understand that person. I don't think they're a bad human being, but I think they should do that at the same time. Acknowledge, look, there's no way to run a society. Nothing, you know, the rate of return on everything, rather than start a small business which provides value to people, which employs people, I have to necessarily, right, just for my rational self-interest, get a buy to let. That, that's no way to run a society. So I wouldn't call them a hypocrite. I think they should be acknowledging the broader dynamics at play and, and, and trying to mitigate them, ultimately trying to change them. A very good thought to end on, and I'm afraid we are out of time. What remains really for me is to say a huge thank you to our panel, to John Zerzan, to Aaron Bastani, to Emma Slade and Sir Vince Cable. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.